Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, today we will start by asking Tracy a question. Okay. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Not that I uh, perceived. Well, you know, because there are small earthquakes everywhere all the time, and there are earthquakes that are felt in Georgia sometimes. And I remember the last time there was an earthquake that was felt pretty strongly in Georgia. I was in Massachusetts. Um, Oh, that's right. And so I was seeing all of these tweets from my friends about the earthquake, and I was like, I am not there. Well, and they're so infrequent in Georgia, a lot of us didn't know what was going on. Like, I literally thought that someone had slammed into, like, my neighbor's house. Like, a car had collided with something. Um, And I, previous to this, when I was very small, I lived on the Pacific Coast, so I would occasionally experience one, but never, like, a huge one. Uh, However, people in Japan deal with earthquakes all the time. Uh, it's no secret that Japan is situated on one of the most dangerous positions our globe has to offer. Uh, it sits on what's called the Ring of Fire, and probably most of our listeners know about this, but just in case they don't, that is a horseshoe shape uh, that runs sort of around the Pacific Ocean. It goes from the southern tip of South America. It travels north along the North American coast. It crosses the Bering Strait, and then it travels down to New Zealand by way of Japan. And that sort of odd horseshoe shape actually outlines the meeting zones of various tectonic plates. And the Eurasian plate meets up with the Pacific plate and the Philippine plate and the North American plate all along where Japan sits. So as you can imagine, with all of those plates rubbing together, the country is no stranger to earthquakes. Uh, It's actually estimated that Japan has some level of earthquake at least every five minutes, and that they experience as many as 2,000 quakes each year that are strong enough for humans to feel them. Uh, 20% of the world's earthquakes that are classified as magnitude six or greater actually happen in Japan. And when you consider how much uh, actual landmass Japan has as compared to the rest of the world, you really get a sense of what a level of concentration that is. And today, uh, the Tokyo-Yokohama metropolis, which sits in the Kanto region, is home to approximately 35 million people, and it's actually considered to have the highest earthquake risk of any metro area in the entire world. Uh, and today we're going to chat about an epic tragedy that happened in Kanto more than 90 years ago. It's fairly famous, although uh, I think it's been long ago that it kind of fades out of people's consciousness. They forget that this happened uh, if they weren't directly involved in it or they don't have a cultural connection to it. So on September 1st of 1923, Japan basically changed forever. Uh, a completely devastating earthquake obliterated Yokohama and much of Tokyo and more than 140,000 people were killed. I'm glad you decided to do this episode because it's been on my list of things that I've wanted us to talk about for a while. And it also plays a part in the last Miyazaki movie called The Wind Rises that came out not long ago, which was the latest thing that made me think we should do an episode on this. Uh, And I haven't seen that movie yet, and I need to. And it is. It's a a really important touchstone in world history, really. Uh, And we'll get to sort of why towards the end of the episode, but... To start off, we will talk a little bit about Yokohama and Tokyo and where they were at uh, in terms of development when this all happened. The port city of Yokohama was once known as the City of Silk, and it was Japan's first foreign settlement. 
It was founded as such in 1859. And this was a little more than five years after the U.S. Commodore Matthew Perry, who we mentioned in the Okichi episode, we being not me, because I was not here then. Yeah, that was uh, when Sarah and I were together. Yes. So uh, he landed in Japan and forced the opening of Japan to the West. Prior to this time, Yokohama has, had existed as just a quiet fishing village. And between Yokohama's establishment as a foreign settlement uh, and the early 1920s, the time that we're talking about today, it really grew extremely quickly. Uh, it had developed into a bustling city. It had a population of about half a million people. But all of that development that Yokohama had seen in, you know, just six decades was gone in a matter of hours uh, the day the Great Quake hit. At this time, Tokyo was already the capital of Japan, and it was a huge metropolitan area that was recognized as a cultural and intellectual hub. And it had also been experiencing a huge boon of industrialization in the time leading up to this. Uh, yes, factories were popping up throughout the areas which are sometimes referred to as low Tokyo. Uh, the population density around those factories in those neighborhoods increased significantly. And many of the people that were living there were... Uh, not surprisingly, factory workers. And many of them were living at or below the poverty line in lo- in homes that were really kind of subpar in terms of construction. They were There were a lot of sort of shacks and a lot of people living very closely together. So Tokyo had adopted building methods from the Western world during the Meiji era, and that ran from 1868 to 1912. But even in spite of this development, there were still a whole lot of all-wooden structures in the city, and that left it extremely vulnerable to earthquakes. So at 11.58 a.m. Uh, on September 1st of 1923, the first shocks of the quake hit. And at this hour, families were just sitting down to lunch. So people that had been at work in the morning had gone home, in many cases, uh, for the lunchtime hour. And the quake was reported by survivors as lasting about 14 seconds. And in that very short period of time, even though that's a long time for a quake, uh, most of Yokohama's buildings were completely brought down just in that first tremor. This quake originated south of Tokyo near Oshima Island in the Sagami Bay. And it was the result of the Philippine plate colliding with the much larger Eurasian plate. And depending on the source... Uh, its magnitude was somewhere between 7.9 and 8.2. So that's an extremely strong earthquake. Yeah, in uh, that time, even in Tokyo, which is a little bit north of Yokohama, and they are, as we said, often grouped together as a metro area, uh, more than half of the brick buildings collapsed, and an estimated one-tenth of the few steel-reinforced structures that still exist that existed at the time were destroyed. So... Already just in that first uh, quake range, there was a whole lot of destruction. Uh, but before we get to the really sort of harrowing and horrible things that happened, uh, we're going to do a quick ad from our sponsor so we don't break up some kind of uh, intense discussion. So to get to what happened next, historians agree that while the devastation of the in- immense tremors of the earthquake was great, the true destructive force that day was fire. The timing of the quake, uh, as I said earlier, striking just as lunch was about to be served, was basically perfect in its terribleness. Uh, 
overturned stoves, which had been finishing up food prep, caused fires throughout the area. And high winds fueled the fires and helped them to spread and spread extremely rapidly. So all of those open flames that were being used to prepare, you know, the last stages of lunch basically just caused uh, these huge fires, which led to incredible devastation. The buildings that had survived the tremor were largely brought down. Uh, it, it was extremely rough. It's estimated that there were more than 130 major fires just breaking out in Tokyo in the half hour following the first tremor. So whereas the initial quake took out most of Yokohama, fires burned Tokyo's city center to the ground. And one of the most sort of horrifying and heartbreaking aspects of this fire uh and this, you know, aftershocks of the earthquake was the development of this phenomenon that are called dragon twists. Uh, and these are basically fire tornadoes. They are twisters that are nothing but fire. And, for example, one uh, twister of fire swept over a makeshift camp where 40,000 people had run to seek refuge after the initial destruction. And they were trapped there and burned to death by this tornado that went over them. Five different whirling firestorms swept across the collapsed neighborhoods of Tokyo. And many eyewitness accounts of this horrible day use the imagery of hell on earth in their descriptions of the destruction and the horror. Yeah, if you read any uh, eyewitness accounts or even people that have, you know, sort of had an oral history handed down through their families, they will almost all say that the people that talked about it called it hell. I mean, it it really was just nothing but fire and devastation. And as fires and aftershocks were ravaging the city, panicked people attempting to evacuate really caused uh, an additional problem, which is that there were bottlenecks forming uh, from pedestrian traffic at basically all the passages away from the city center. So all the bridges, all the streets, all the alleyways just became impassably clogged with people, and a lot of people burned to death as they just stood trapped in these throngs, unable to move in any direction. Some people tried to bypass the clogged thoroughfares by jumping into the Samita River, and a lot of them drowned while trying to escape the city this way. Uh, Still others had never even, of course, had time to run. They were incinerated in buildings that went up in flames with incredible speed. The fires kept burning for up to two days. Yeah, they just did not have the resources. I mean, if you think of any even modern city, if 130 major fires broke out in Atlanta today, I think our fire departments would be hard pressed to get those all under control uh, in a in a quick manner. So you can imagine in, you know, almost 100 years ago with the technology available at that time, in a tightly crowded city, how difficult it would have been to put out, you know, what started as 130 fires and then I'm sure expanded f- far beyond that. Well, then, in addition to all the flames, the earthquake also caused a tsunami, which added a whole additional layer of devastation to the coast of Japan. Yeah, this tsunami reached an estimated uh, 39.5 feet in height, which is about 12 meters, and it crashed into the coastline along Sagami Bay. And this caused, of course, additional property damage. It also killed more people. Cars and even houses were completely swept away, and mud mixed together with ashes in the streets to create even more mess and devastation. 
Yeah, just basically, I mean, I, I, it's, I have seen pictures and we will link to pictures, uh, in the show notes. Some of them are a little bit difficult to look at if you're sensitive. Uh, but it's just, it looks like something almost from a movie. Like there's almost no frame of reference for me anyway of like, in terms of reality, what that must have been like. Uh, incredibly intense and terrifying. It's very much an Armageddon scenario, you know, that would be played out in modern cinema. But in the days after the disaster, there was another horrific development that had nothing to do with uh, nature. It was entirely man-made. So three days after this whole ordeal started, riots broke out in Tokyo. Some newspapers were accusing Koreans who were living in Tokyo of looting. And the newspapers insinuated that the Koreans had started the majority of the fires. And there were also allegations that groups of Koreans were poisoning the wells. So many of these allegations are now believed to have just been mere rumors that were printed by the newspapers. Yeah, this was a time of, you know, a lot of crazy things going on. And uh, presumably people were giving eyewitness accounts to the newspapers that maybe were not accurate and... As survivors were struggling to keep going and get enough to eat and get enough, you know, water in conditions that would stress anyone to the breaking point, uh, unfortunately, Japan's Korean population really became sort of the immigrant scapegoat and the focus of pent up frustration and grief and anger and just the shock of what was going on around all of them. So basically, whether it was true or not, people believed that gangs of young Korean men were going through the whole city and pillaging. So counter gangs formed to patrol and deal out swift punishment. Yeah. Um, accounts of some of the atrocities that took place during this time are really very disturbing. Uh, according to one American tourist who had been in the city when all of this happened, for example, there was a Korean man who was simply by virtue of being Korean and thus associated with these crimes that people believed were happening, was tied to a pole and just left there. And basically he was beaten by all passersby as some sort of retribution for what they thought he may have been a part of. There are also some conflicting accounts about some Koreans who were put onto boats and sent out into the harbor. And while some versions characterize this as an, an attempt to secure the safety of the people on the boats, Others insinuate the intent was to send these people to their deaths as the boats caught fire out in the harbor. Whether the fires were accidental or set on purpose, the people who were on the boats died. Yeah, the, um, you know, there had been oil barrels and other um, flammable chemicals that were there on the docks that when the earthquake hit and the uh, additional tsunami, you know, they were broken apart. And so there was this oily sheen on the the surface of the water, which was very, very flammable. And so there are some accounts that suggest that people were actually tied up and put on the boats. Some just say that they were being pushed onto the boats, as Tracy said, to try to save them, like to get them away from the city where people were behaving, you know, out of completely ramped up fear. But we don't really know. We only know that they all perished. Japanese socialists were also grouped with the Koreans as traitors, and being identified as a member of either group was an instant death warrant. People were set upon in the streets and cut to pieces with swords or clubs to death. These attacks were just ferocious, 
And undoubtedly, they came from the stress of the whole situation. But the atrocities then became a point of shame for a lot of people. One public official described these incidents as, quote, a major defect of the national spirit. Uh, and in the end, there were only 125 vigilantes charged for all of these crimes, even though uh, m- most historical accounts will say that there were far more than 125 people involved in uh, these beatings and stabbings that were going on. And out of those 125, only 32 of them actually received a formal sentence. Uh, 91 were given suspended sentences. In the end, 90% of the homes in Yokohama were damaged or destroyed. 60% of Tokyo's population also lost their homes. Yeah, the entire metropolitan area was really plunged into like an epidemic of homelessness at this point. Uh, and on September 2nd, uh, the U.S. Navy had vessels leaving China to sort of lead a relief effort to try to help Japan. And within a week, Yokohama's harbor was filled with ships bringing relief supplies. Uh, the American relief efforts provided 12.7 million yen to Japan, and that made up of uh, roughly 70 percent of the total aid that they received from uh, other countries. When you think about how much cleanup was required after all of this destruction, it quickly becomes really sobering. The cleanup alone was monumental, but the whole area had to be surveyed because property lines were completely erased along with everything else. Uh, so in addition to trying to clear all of the rubble, which, I mean, at this point, you know, the vast majority of these areas were rubble, uh, and trying to figure out where things had been in terms of property, there was also the huge problem of the dead. Because of the unprecedented numbers of bodies, again, remember, we're talking about more than 140,000 people that died in this tragedy uh, that had to be cleared and dealt with. The city set up 15 different collection centers where bodies could be brought, and they actually allocated uh, several hundred city workers, and it was just their job to sort of collect bodies and help this effort. And then uh, once the the bodies were collected and they tried to identify as many as they could, but that wasn't always possible, uh, sites for corpse incineration had to be established. Uh, Although the majority of the dead were all cremated near the area that had been the most drastically hit by fire to begin with. One of the most horrifying things that comes up in account after account is what the city smelled like during all of this. So you can imagine on top of the tragedy and sort of the shock and the heartache, just dealing with this really uncomfortable odor everywhere you went that just reminded you of what was going on. I can't even fathom. And in spite of this almost unfathomable disaster, there was also some growth. Tokyo's future was envisioned in the form of this superlative metropolitan mecca. And there was a national effort to fulfill this promise of Tokyo's future. And while many, you know, saw this as an opportunity to rebuild Tokyo as a shining new modern city, there were a lot of arguments among government officials and the people about how that dream would be achieved and what it would actually look like. You know, it's one thing to say we want to rebuild it better than ever, but what that means to different people is going to be different things. And that caused some strife. Uh, Urban planners, social welfare advocates, there were activists, there were politicians, as well as just citizens. And they, in many cases, were all at odds over how they were all going to move forward, what sorts of spaces they needed uh, to be included in city planning, and how funds were going to be allocated. 
And additionally, to sort of further complicate this, is that while most people wanted to kind of look at this as a blank slate, uh, which, of course, it can't really be, uh, a lot of the people who had lost everything but had survived the disaster really just wanted to try to go back to their lives as they had been and rebuild things the way they were. And they weren't so concerned with trying to build some new, better thing. They they just wanted what they had before. Then there was also the problem of where the money would come from. There was a reconstruction bill that was introduced in December of 1923, and it proposed a budget of 598 million yen. This did not meet with a lot of favor. The budget was only passed after it was reduced by 130 million yen. And in the six years following the bill's approval, another 270 million yen was additionally unencumbered for the reconstruction effort. But even that failed to meet even the most austere plans that were envisioned for the new Tokyo. And there was another piece of legislation that came about during the December parliament meeting uh, and that was a law that enabled the government to take 10% of each parcel of private property to devote to public space. Uh, landowners who were going to lose more than 10% to meet the logistical needs of city planning uh, would be compensated, but only for that loss that extended above the 10% that had been, uh, that this law allowed to be seized. This law was intended to rebuild the city in a more logical manner. They wanted to avoid the overly narrow streets and alleyways that had led to so many thousands of people being trapped in the fires during the disaster. But as you can imagine, a lot of citizens petitioned the government to keep more of their land during all the property readjustment. So those requests also slowed down the government as they were reviewed. Yeah, there were thousands of requests because, of course, nobody wants to give up one tenth of the property they own, even the, if it is for the greater good and for, you know, a, a better built city with a, a more effective, you know, sort of disaster plan situation. But uh, in the end, most people lost a chunk of their property. Uh, and on the whole, this aftermath of the disaster was really filled with a lot of reflection, I think. Uh, on everyone's part, particularly government leadership, over the future of not just the capital city, but the country as a whole. And it really opened up some dialogues about disaster preparedness and evacuation planning and city planning to support those ideas. There were also some possibly surprising negatives that came out of all this. National pride really swelled, but also there was a lot of xenophobia that developed. There were alarmist articles that accused the United States of spearheading the relief effort to try to humiliate Japan. And this growing unease and the desire for expansion after the quake is frequently cited as one of the catalysts for World War II. Yeah, so it didn't, of course, happen all at once, but it's kind of a lot of historians will point to it and say, you know, it was this sort of mindset that led to decisions that ended up, you know, with Japan trying to expand into China and that sort of setting off a lot of these world events. Uh, the 1923 disaster also had uh, another sort of benefit, which is that it seeded some new areas of scientific exploration. Uh, and uh, it caused a lot of countries, not just Japan, but Japan did a lot of it, to really explore new ways of predicting earthquakes and other natural disasters. So when you hear about like experiments done with like uh, animals and their sensitivity to uh, tectonic movement, a lot of that really started 
because this earthquake happened. So a lot of the uh, the detection systems that we have today, this was sort of their genesis point where where that technology started to develop and and be uh, really focused on by a lot of countries. Because as we have gotten bigger and more metropolitan and built more things, that means more things that can fall down and collapse and that people want to try to save if they can ahead of time. Uh, so that is the... Uh, horrific event of 1923 that happened in Japan. It sounds so scary when I look at pictures. And like I said, we'll link to them. Uh, I I just, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine what it would be like. I try to think about like, what, what if that exact same thing, it couldn't be exactly the same, obviously, but what if a similar thing happened, you know, where I live? I don't even know how you collect yourself after that. You know, we certainly have had hurricane disasters, happen in the, the U.S. and in other countries. I mean, there have been other disasters. The 2011 uh, Fukushima disaster in Japan caused a lot of people to look back on this event, but uh, it's it's difficult to contemplate. I've been so, very quiet because... You, <laughs> I, I presume very, you're waxing pensive. Yeah, it's all very distressing. It is, and especially uh, I really get... Obviously, any natural disaster is horrible, but I get very choked up at sort of how humans dealt with it and and things got very violent at a time when, you know, of course, people would ideally come together and support each other. But that isn't always how it works uh, when there is fear in the air. So we will instead switch over to uh, a listener mail from our listener, Adrienne. And she says, as a French Canadian, I was happy to see your episodes on Le Chef. As someone who received their education in another province, I think I may be able to provide a response to a question you posed at the end of the podcast, wondering how those of us in other parts of the country learn about him. Uh, I really like this letter. I will interject because uh, while Adrienne is French-Canadian, she did, as she said, get her education outside of Quebec. So it's an interesting perspective that we hadn't quite seen before, which is why I wanted to read this. She says, firstly, it speaks greatly to the place of Quebec in Canada that I learned more about its premieres than those of my home province, which was Manitoba. Uh, it could just be that Quebec premieres are simply more interesting, however. Anyhow, what I did learn about Duplessis was fairly neutral. We learned that he was a premier who wielded his power broadly and the close associations he had with the Roman Catholic Church. However, much was done in the context of what was changed during the Quiet Revolution, which, uh, again, to interject, is that period after Duplessis was no longer in power. For instance, she says, we learned about his church affiliations and then about how secularist Quebec became. I would also be very curious as to what they learned about Quebec's political history in Quebec. Education of history is so fascinating. Whose history is being taught? Thought I would drop this note over to you, too. Yeah, I mean, she kind of uh, brings up the question that we always mention of, you know, history is... told by many different voices and they do not always have the same perspective and so the story to my mind usually the story is found in kind of having all of the uh, different ways of looking at a thing and sort of the details kind of reveal themselves although there are always elements that are never really fully clear what the actual situation was so thank you for that listener mail if you would like to write us, you can absolutely do that. We've mentioned before that our email address is changing, uh, and that is now historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on facebook.com slash historyclassstuff, on Twitter at mistinhistory, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to 
our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Type the word earthquake into the search bar and you will get how earthquakes work. So if you'd like to learn about that and a great many other things uh, and many of the the detection and, and modern science in that article, like I said, was sort of seeded by this horrific tragedy happening. Uh, but you can learn about that and a whole lot more on our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 